This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Well, our text this morning comes to us from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 16 to 24. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from God whatever we ask, because we obey God's commandments and do what pleases God. And this is God's commandment, that we should believe in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, my theme this morning is it's all about love. It's all about love. And I grew up imagining that the heart of the Christian life was about believing the right things. It was about believing the right things. And if you feel like you grew up in that sort of environment, feel free to say me too or or, uh, me also or something like that in the comments. And so, number one, uh, faith was understood as believing or giving mental assent to certain doctrines, right? Learning them, uh, memorizing them, mentally saying, I agree with them. And this was important because in this view, uh, secondly, the afterlife is central, right? Where will you spend eternity? And believing was what we understood would save us. And because the emphasis on being saved by faith and not by works was so strong, sometimes uh, good works were actually seen in a more negative light, as if we were trying to prove to God that we were worthy of being saved. Well, we better be extra careful. We're not trying to prove to God, so we'll just really emphasize believing the right things rather than doing the right things. Uh, And this is sort of the focus of uh, orthodoxy or right... um, belief over orthopraxy, which is right practice, right? So believing was a priority over living. <clears throat> uh, 
not an unfamiliar uh, framing for those of us uh, who grew up in West Michigan. But if we take a step back and take a wider look, not only at the life of Jesus and the scriptures, but also the history of the church, we see that this notion that Christian faith equals belief, and again by belief I mean sort of a mental assent, uh, that that's more of a modern product. It's more of a modern development. It's relatively new. And this modern paradigm sees the Bible as a divine product with divine authority, right? Something that came from heaven that tells us how to get from heaven. That's how we understood the Bible. But of course, uh, many of us understand that the Bible is first and foremost a human product. A human product. Which, of course, doesn't mean it, that it isn't sacred or inspired, but it is largely a human response to God. And its goal isn't to give us the cheat codes to skip this life and get to the afterlife. Sorry, a little Nintendo reference there. We broke out the old Nintendo this week, and, you know, there you go, the cheat codes. The goal of the Bible, right, isn't just to sort of give us a formula, right, to how to get to heaven uh, when we die, but that's often how it was treated in... Uh, in my beginnings uh, in the faith, but rather uh, the Bible seeks to invite us into transformation and healing in this life. Transformation and healing in this life through relationship with God and one another. And this is how many of the early Christians understood it and uh, we know that in part by looking at the earliest <clears throat> Christian imagery in art, wall frescoes, and sarcophagus carvings. And this helps us understand what they emphasized and what they found central and compelling about the person of Jesus. And John Dominic Crossan, the New Testament historian and scholar, says that if you tried to guess what images Jesus believers emphasized up to the third century, you'd probably be wrong and you'd definitely be surprised. Because we might expect the emphasis of these early Christian images to be of Jesus crucified or of Jesus rising from the dead or maybe the second coming, or Jesus as judge. But pre-Constantinian art and imagery focused not on any of those things. It focused on Jesus, the healer. Jesus, the healer, right? Scenes of healing predominate early Christian imagery. This is so helpful in understanding uh, what they saw and understood and what struck their hearts so much that they were moved to depict it in art. And Crossan notes that this, in many ways, gives us sort of the, the, the people's understanding, right? There's sometimes the official understanding, which was left to those who could write, uh, the more elite and educated and so on. So we have certainly writings from the early church, but it's also helpful to look at early Christian imagery, which would have been sort of the, the view from below, as it were. And so this notion of believing the right things for the sake of, 
quote, being saved or going to heaven, right? That's more modern than ancient. Jesus was more about how we bring wholeness and healing, a taste of heaven, if you will, to this life here and now. And so it's an embodied faith, right? An embodied faith that Jesus invites us into, something which encapsulates our whole being. And so let's look at the first verse of our text again. Verse 16 says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And then it says, and now in the version of Christianity that I was taught, we might, what might we expect to come after the and? Let me read it again. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we might expect something like, and therefore believe in his name and you'll be saved from eternal damnation and go to heaven when you die. Right? If I was taking a test in Sunday school or catechism <clears throat> class, that's probably how I would have answered it. But that's not what the text actually says. Let's read it again. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In other words, our response to what Jesus did is not simply to make a mental assertion of belief. Jesus died for you. Better believe it, buddy, or else. No, our response should be Jesus showed you what love looks like. Now go do likewise. Jesus embodied love. And love that is embodied will result in transformation. Transformation, right? Change that is, yes, spiritual, emotional, and physical, right? It'll encapsulate our entire being. Love, of course, that's rooted in Jesus' vision of equity, justice, and peace. And the next two verses, in case you think I'm stretching this, the next two verses underscore this. Verse 17 says, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses help? In other words, you can talk about God's love all you want, but if you are not making a difference here and now for people who are struggling, that claim of love might be a little hollow. And then verse 18, little children, let us Love, not in word or in speech, but in truth and action. Man, that's powerful. Let us love in truth and action. Let us see where in the world there is inequity, where there's lack, where there's hunger, where there's pain, where there's injustice, where there's brokenness, where there's imbalance, imbalance. and then let's show up. Let's show up and be there. And do our part to make a difference, to embody the way that Jesus showed us and taught us. And of course, this must happen at an individual level, right? From one person to another. Critical, but also it's got to happen at a social or societal level, right? Within systems and structures, Should I help a single person who is struggling? Yes, absolutely. But if I only help 
one person at a time, while ignoring the systems and structures that are rooted in inequity and keep creating injustice and imbalance, true change will forever evade us. That's why it isn't enough, right, to plant one tree to help the environment, though we should definitely plant one tree or several, right? We have to look at the ways our institutions and our local and national policies are impacting the earth. And that's why it isn't enough to give one meal to a hungry person, though absolutely we should do that. But we also have to look at the systemic and societal reasons why 30% of our neighbors are experiencing food insecurity. What is built into the system that is keeping people from getting the education and the training they need? What's keeping them from getting the housing they need? What is keeping them from having the option to work for a job that pays a living wage? We cannot hold only one police officer accountable and imagine that we've fixed things. We have to address the systemic roots of why police violence keeps happening against black and brown people in this country disproportionately and indiscriminately. We must not only pull drowning neighbors out of the river. We've got to ask, why are they in the river to begin with? And the early church understood this. In his book, We Make the Road by Walking, Brian McLaren says, before Christianity was a rich and powerful religion, before it was associated with buildings, budgets, crusades, colonialism, or televangelism, it began as a revolutionary, nonviolent movement creating a new kind of aliveness on the margins of society. I love that, a new kind of aliveness on the margins of society. It dared to honor women, children, and unmarried adults in a world ruled by married men. He goes on to say, it dared to elevate slaves to equality with those who gave them orders. It challenged slave masters to free their slaves and see them as peers. It defied religious taboos that divided people into us and them, in and out, good and evil, clean and unclean. It claimed that everyone, not just an elite few, had God-given gifts to use for the common good. It exposed a system based on domination, privilege, and nonviolence and proclaimed in its place a vision of mutual service, mutual responsibility, and peaceable neighborliness. It put people above profit and made the audacious claim that the earth belonged not to rich tycoons or powerful politicians, but to the creator who loves every sparrow in the trees and every wildflower in the field. It was a peace movement, a love movement, and an aliveness movement. It had no bank accounts, but it was rich in relationships and joy. It had no elaborate hierarchy or organization, but spread like wildfire through simple practices of empowerment and self-organization. Wow. Man, doesn't that sound awesome? Doesn't that sound like what you want to be a part of? Gets me fired up. Man, I love that. A movement of change, a movement to remake the world into a place of beauty, justice, and joy. Now, McLaren does note, lest we look back 
through glasses that are overly rose-colored that they did have lots of problems too, right? They were human beings after all. But he notes that they grappled with those problems courageously and together. They grappled with it courageously and together. And speaking of handling problems courageously, the cure violence effort in New York is one such example. It is a movement of unarmed but trained people, often formerly violent offenders themselves, who patrol their neighborhoods to curb violence right where it starts. Jonathan uh, Schaff tells the story of one neighborhood where this has made a difference. He writes, 149. That's the number of consecutive days New York's 75th precinct, a 12-block swath of Brooklyn's notoriously dangerous East New York neighborhood. That's the number of consecutive days this neighborhood has gone without a shooting. The pride of those accumulated days of peace resonates deeply within Tim Washington's low, steady voice. Tim Washington, 27, is an outreach worker for Cure Violence and he has played his part in turning the neighborhood around. It's his neighborhood, the one, the same one that he grew up in. Everybody used to go into their houses at six or seven o'clock, Tim says, but now people are able to come back outside with their kids, right? They're sensing it's a safer place. It's a place where a family can spend time together outdoors and not be afraid. Tim oversees a caseload of 15 at-risk participants in the community. Checking in on them from time to time and making himself available should problems arise. But Schaff writes, it's important to remember that cure violence doesn't work like a light switch, right? Turning violence on and off with the flip of a switch. 149 days of no shootings or killings in East New York doesn't happen without its fair share of close calls. And Tim has lived through a series of these close calls, and he remembers one evening particularly well. A member of his caseload called him up because, in Tim's words, (coughs) he wanted to violently hurt someone. The issue may have been gang-related, but before the phone call had even ended, Tim had hopped in his car, was driving over there to pick him up. And he took this person, this member of the community, this neighbor, this friend, and drove around with him all night, processing feelings, digesting the situation until this man had calmed down enough to go home. Crisis averted. But Tim wonders what would have happened if he'd been unable to answer his phone that day. But I love this, right? Local people who understand and know their community, who've been through challenges themselves, who've gotten in trouble themselves, so can know the struggle, can know what it's like to be frustrated, to be angry, and then to use that anger to create harm. But they're in relationship, and they are, and I think this is key, unarmed. They are unarmed, and they're there. Man, makes you wonder, why do we keep insisting that the only way to keep our communities safe is to have armed police? Why do we keep perpetuating the idea that the solution to stopping violence is more violence or the threat of violence? 
Now, I'm not making any policy proclamations here, but I am saying we've got to be creative because the path we've been going down just isn't working. We've got to do better. And of course, this is just one uh, example on one issue, right? One example on one issue. But we know there are countless stories, countless stories, including the work many of you and so many others are doing in our community right here around issues of food, housing, access to resources, building relationships, and so much more, and so much more. And we do these things not only because they're the right thing to do, but also because they embody the faith that Jesus came to teach us. As the writer of our text this morning put it, little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. May it be so. Amen. And namaste. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.